Our scripture this morning is in John chapter 17, verses 13 through 19. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray now and give our thanks to God and turn our attention toward his word. Our Father, I do thank you for the chaos that was uh, our lives this morning because you're definitely at work in it. You're certainly doing things that we can't see and you're surely helping us understand why it is time for us to find a place of our own. And we pray, Father, that by the power of your hand that you would do just that. We pray, Father, that you would bring us into the place that you already see, Lord. You already see everything as though it's already here and so we ask you just to lead us in faith to that place and by faith we give you our thanks and lord i thank you for gideon's international i thank you for their ministry and i thank you for the generosity of this people and i pray that you would take these mini bibles lord and put them in the hands of actual people and i pray father that some people would come to faith in christ because we made generous gifts to this ministry i love you for including us in your work in the world and i thank you for this particular opportunity And Lord Jesus, now that we turn our minds and our hearts back to your prayer, I pray that you would open up our eyes. And I pray, Father, that I would do nothing or say nothing this morning that would be a distraction to the glory that is in these verses. Oh, Father, please help us now to uh, leave our lives aside, to leave our flesh to the side, and to go with you into the Holy of Holies and to hear carefully the things that you have to say. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name, we pray for these things. Amen. On that sacred night... Before the day of his crucifixion, Jesus was in the upper room of a house in Jerusalem with his disciples. There they enjoyed a a Passover meal together. We might even say the Passover meal together. There Jesus taught them uh, about a number of things and he prepared them for his imminent departure. And when he was done teaching them at some length from John chapter 13 to the end of John chapter 16, he prayed a prayer that is, uh, praise be to God, preserved for us in John 17. Jesus began this prayer by lifting up his eyes to heaven. And as I suggested to you a couple weeks ago, I think what he was trying to do in lifting up his eyes was to direct the attention of the disciples and even our attention up to the Lord. They were in an upper room, but he wanted to join them to join him in the, in the very holy of holies. They had been talking of, about the Father, but now Jesus wanted to talk to the Father, and he very much wanted his people to hear the things that he had to say. He wanted his disciples that day to hear him, and he wants us to hear him today. And having lifted up his eyes, he began by praying for himself, and he asked the Father something that's really astounding. He said, Father, glorify me. In fact, he repeated himself in verse 5 and said, glorify me with your very glory. Glorify me along with yourself, with the glory I had with you from before the foundation of the world, that I might in turn glorify you. This is a prayer that only someone who is God could properly pray. 
And having prayed such a prayer, Jesus then turned his attention from himself toward the disciples and began to pray for them. And we saw last week that he, he first affirmed that the disciples had received his word. He affirmed that he had manifested to them the, the name of the Lord, which is equivalent to saying he manifested to them the glory of the Lord. And he affirmed in the hearing of the Father that they had received his words, that they had believed in his message, and that they had kept the words of God. Now, as we saw last week, the only reason they were able to keep the words of God is because Jesus was, in fact, keeping them. And with that in mind, Jesus asked the Father to keep them in his name. He asked the Father to keep them believing and believing and believing so that they could keep on keeping and keeping and keeping his word. And he prayed this with utter confidence in the Father. And having prayed such things, Jesus turned his attention in verses 13 to 19 to clarify the purpose of his prayer, to ask the Father to help the disciples persevere in this world, and finally, he asked the Father to sanctify them by his word of truth. So I want to begin this morning by camping out on verse 13 for a a while. There's, There's a lot there, and I want to talk about that verse, and then we'll talk about verses 14 through 16 as a unit. And then we'll talk about verses 17 through 19 as a unit. So let's turn our attention to verse 13. Jesus begins, but now, Father, I am coming to you. In other words, he's saying, I'm about to finish my work completely. I'm about to do everything that you sent me to this earth to do, and soon I will be caught back up with you. Soon I will be raised from the dead. Soon I will ascend from the earth. Soon I will be seated again at your right hand where I will rule and reign forever as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Soon I will return to my rightful place. And since his departure to the Father was imminent, and since the consequences of his departure were so serious for the disciples, he continued and and said this. He said, and these things, the things that I'm praying out loud right now, I speak aloud in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, as I have pointed out over the last couple of weeks, this statement comes right in the middle of Jesus' prayer because it's central to everything that Jesus prayed. Understanding verse 13 is crucial to understanding the entire prayer. He put these words smack dab in the middle because he wanted to put these words smack dab in the middle. And Jesus did not pray these things that he was praying for his own sake or or for the Father's sake. He had a, a robust prayer life. We see that all throughout the Gospels. But he did not need to pray out loud for the Father's sake. He did not need to pray out loud for his own sake because he knows that the Father hears what's in secret and he has utter confidence in the depth and intimacy of his relationship with the Father. And so he prayed these things out loud for the sake of those who were hearing him, for the sake of those he had come to redeem, for the sake of those he loved so much, and this is why he wanted them to hear him. And this is why he wants us to hear him today, that his very joy will be fulfilled in his people. Let me put it to you this way. Jesus wants his people to possess his joy and to feel his joy. I wanna take a few minutes and press on this point. Jesus wants his people to possess his joy, and he wants his people to feel his joy. Now, I've heard people say for many years, and I, in fact, have said myself for many years that there's a difference between joy and happiness, and I've made the distinction that happiness is a superficial thing built on circumstances, and joy is a deeper thing that is long-lasting. 
But the, the problem with that way of thinking is that it really can't be supported by, by the biblical evidence that's there. So let me just give you a couple reasons why that way of thinking really can't be sustained. In other words, the distinction between having joy and feeling joy. First of all, the biblical words for joy, both in the Old and in the New Testament, do not carry this distinction inside themselves. The biblical words do not make a distinction between having joy and feeling joy. Of course, the Bible uh, talks about our, our source of joy. Of course, the Bible encourages us away from things that when we find our joy in them, that joy is fleeting. If you seek your joy in the things of the world, your joy has already got a, a timer on it, and, and it's going to fade away because the things of the world will fade away. If you seek your joy in God, there's no timer on it because God is eternal, and therefore your joy is eternal. So, of course, the, the Bible distinguishes between the differences be, between what we find our joy in. But what I'm saying is that the biblical words themselves do not distinguish between having joy and feeling joy. And this leads to a second, more precise point. The words in Hebrew and in Greek for joy imply that we would feel joy. In fact, what sense does it make to say that I have joy, but I don't feel any joy? What sense does it make to say that I have happiness, but I don't feel happy? It actually doesn't make any sense. Let me give you an illustration by, by talking for a second about love. If Kim was to come up to me after the service today, and say, Charlie, I want you to know that I love you. We've been married 28 years. I'm committed to you. I will never divorce you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, but I want you to know I don't have any feelings for you anymore. 28 years has been long enough. I can't deal with your jokes anymore. I can't deal with your habits anymore. I just, I love you. I'm committed to you, but I don't have any feelings for you. How would that sound to my ears? Would that sound like good news? Or would that sound like bad news? I think that would be incredibly bad news. Love does not reduce to feelings, but love is filled with feelings. Love values the person that is loved, and love has feelings for the person that is loved, and we can say the same thing about joy. The fountain of joy, the foundation of joy, is not feelings. I'll grant you that. The foundation and the fountain of joy is much deeper than the feelings themselves, but joy without feelings is no joy at all. Jesus wants us to possess his happiness, and Jesus wants us to feel his happiness. He wants us to possess his joy. He wants us to feel his joy forever. Now, we're going to see very soon that this doesn't mean that our lives in this world are going to be easy. We're going to see soon that this doesn't mean that we should always walk around with a fake smile pasted on our face. The joy of Jesus is very deep, that's for sure. But what we're going to see is that Jesus intends to use every circumstance in our lives, whether it is inherently joyful or inherently difficult or inherently tragic, Jesus is going to use every circumstance in our lives to develop and, and ignite and magnify our joy in him, or to put it more precisely, to magnify his joy inside of us. Everything Jesus is up to in our lives is about this. It's about maximizing his joy inside of us and bringing us not only to the feelings but into the deep, deep, deep roots of those feelings. He wants us to have the roots. That's the possession of joy. But beloved, he wants us to experience the fruit as well and that's the feeling of joy. I wanna just press this upon you. 
And I want to encourage you to meditate upon this. If you belong to Jesus Christ, if you have bowed your life before him, if you are following him, he wants you to possess and feel his joy. And he is praying for our joy, and he is working for our joy in everything. Now I want us to notice that the way Jesus delivers his joy is through his words. Please notice that. You have to pause and think about this to see it, but it's right there in the text. These things I have spoken so that they may have my joy fulfilled in himself, in themselves. That means if Jesus did not speak, the joy could not be fulfilled. That means that the words of Jesus are the conduit by which he delivers his joy to his people. His words are extremely important in this equation. Just as Jesus used his words to manifest the glory of the Father, so Jesus uses his words to deliver his joy. Oh, beloved, how I pray that we'll understand that his words are crucial in our lives. How I pray that we will not make little of Jesus' words because when we make little of Jesus' words in our day-to-day life, we actually kill the source of joy in our lives. We cut it off. It's like putting a dam in the middle of a river. But when we make much of the words of Jesus in our life, when we open up our lives to the things he has to say, we open up the river of joy and his joy becomes more and more fulfilled in us. Now just to help us understand the seriousness with which Jesus takes this and the extent he wants to take it, I want to talk with you for a second about this word fulfilled, that it may be fulfilled in you. It won't be a surprise to you, but the word means, just in a dictionary sense, it means to make something full, to fill something up completely, or to bring something to a place of totality. So this isn't an issue of filling something up halfway. Get in your mind the picture of filling up a cup until it's overflowing. That's what this word is. This word is strong. Bringing to its absolute completion is what this word means. And not only is the word in itself strong, but Jesus used the strongest possible form of the word to communicate what he was communicating. I don't want to take the time to give you a Greek lesson because I think that would be distracting, but, but please trust me, and if you want to, talk to someone else in the room that knows something about Greek, and you'll see that, that I'm right about this. The, the strongest possible form that Jesus could use, he used that form to say, I want, I intend to, I will fulfill completely all of my joy inside of the lives of my people. Beloved, this is what Jesus wants for us. And I want to just pause again and press on you to meditate upon this, to think about this, to take it personally. Jesus isn't only talking to us as individuals. He does want to fulfill the joy of his people as a people, but he is speaking to us as individuals if we're believers, if we're following him, if we have bowed our lives before him by his grace and by his power. Take this personally. Jesus wants your joy. He's praying for your joy And he is working for your joy in him. He wants it to be absolutely filled. And notice, please notice, that the way he stated this, the responsibility for the fulfillment of the joy is not on the disciples' shoulders, it's on his shoulders. Please notice that he said, I speak these things so that the joy might be fulfilled in them. Not so that they'll fulfill it, it's so that it might be fulfilled. In other words, what I'm saying is, we have a part to play, in surrendering ourselves to the words of Jesus and opening up our hearts and our minds to the words of Jesus, but that surrender is only a a, a fruit of grace in our lives anyway. 
Jesus is the one who's going to fulfill his joy in us. The heavy lifting is on his shoulders. We are, in, in a very real sense, passive recipients. And I'm not saying that that means we should just go home and you know, sit in our easy chair and sit back and just wait for Jesus to fill us up. There, there are means that he has given to us, mainly his word. But when we open up his word by his grace, I just want us to see, I want us to understand that it is his, it's his work in us. In fact, I would tell you, it is his promise to us that he is going to fulfill his joy in his people by his words. This, beloved, is his promise. But if this is Jesus' stated promise to us, then what exactly is his joy? What, what are we talking about when he says, I want my joy to be fulfilled in my people? What is his joy? Well, I've given a lot of thought to that over the years, and, and again this week, I spent a couple hours just praying about this and thinking about this, and I, I don't think at all that I'm exaggerating to say that the magnitude of Jesus' joy and the intricacies of his joy are beyond imagination. I really think that's true. It, well, except for his imagination. I think that the magnitude and intricacies of his joy are beyond explaining, I, I really do. His joy is as infinite as he is. And yet, I think he has made clear to us what is at the heart of his joy. I think he's shown us what's at the center of the center of his joy. And that is the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father. Do you remember what Jesus said in verse three? Just for a second, don't look at your text, just think about it for a second. What is eternal life? What did he say eternal life is? He didn't say it's life that never ends. It, it is that, but, it, but that's not the heart of it. He said that eternal life is the relational knowledge of God the Father and the relational knowledge of God the Son. That's what he said. The essence of life is the knowledge of God, the relational knowledge of God. And I want to suggest to you that the center of the center of Jesus' joy is the mutual love that flows between the Father and the Son. And just so that I'm clear, I'm not trying to ignore the Holy Spirit here. Of course, God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Of course, the Holy Spirit loves the Father and the Son and vice versa. But I'm just trying to honor John 17. The Holy Spirit is not even mentioned in this chapter. There is something unique and special and central about the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father. And this is the center of Jesus' joy. Think about it this way. If you're a married person... We should not be taking our joy in the benefits of marriage. We should be taking our joy in the person to whom we are married. I don't love Kim because what I get, what I get out of Kim. I love Kim because I love Kim. I value her. I, I praise God for her. I think about her. I see, I see so much in her. I give thanks to God that he perfectly outfitted a person with whom I could share my life. I take my joy in the person. Same thing is what I'm saying here, except amplified to infinity. Jesus takes his joy in the Father himself, and the Father takes his joy in Jesus himself. This is the heart of the joy, beloved, of Jesus. This is the heart of what he wants to give us. And so this is why Jesus prayed, Father, Father, please keep them in your name so that they can be one as we are one. If I remember right, that's verse 11. Keep them believing and believing and believing so that they can be enfolded into the very love of the Father and of the Son. That is the fountain and foundation of the joy 
that he wants to share with us. And there is no better foundation. There is no better fountain. This is the root that he wants us to possess. Of course he wants us to feel things for God. How can you rejoice in God and praise God if you feel nothing for God? But those feelings emerge from the root, and the root is the love of the Father and the love of the Son. And that is what Jesus is enfolding us into, beloved. This is the destiny of everybody who believes in Christ, to be absolutely enfolded uh, into the love of God for God. So I pray with all my heart that we'll ponder these things. I pray that we will ponder the fact that Jesus wants us to possess and feel his joy. This is his intention for us, his prayer for us, his work in our lives are aimed at this. And I pray that we'll understand that he wants to do that by bringing us into the heart of his love, the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father. If you will think even just for a short time about the fact that you as a sinner have been saved by grace and enfolded into the very love of God for God, you will be stunned and in awe and willing to praise and worship and serve and sacrifice this great and gracious Savior for the rest of your lives. Oh, beloved, please don't make little of verse 13. There's so much there. There's so much there. And it's at the center of his prayer because it's central to everything that he prayed. So with that, let's look now at verses 14 to 16 as a unit. As I said a moment ago, the fact that Jesus is committed to sharing the fullness of his joy with his people does not mean that our lives in this world are going to be easy. In fact, in verse 14, he returns to a theme that was in uh, chapters 15 and 16, and he essentially makes us the opposite kind of promise. He says in verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. And I think it's fair to say he's implying that the world is going to continue to hate them and hate them and hate them. Now the reason Jesus gives for the world's hatred of the disciples was that they were not of the world just as he was not of the world. They were so identified with him that their fundamental identity shifted from being a, a member of the world family to being a member of the God family. This is a, an act of stunning grace because the truth of the matter is when Jesus met these guys in John chapter one, two, and three, they were of the world. The truth of the matter is that they were lost in their sin and, and living for their flesh and living for the world and living for the devil. Of course, they had been chosen by the Father from before the foundation of the world, but I'm talking about the practical details of their life. They were lost. And Jesus called to them, and by the grace of the Father, they believed. By the grace of the Father, they came in. And Jesus didn't just give them membership in a club. He radically transformed their nature so that they no longer belonged to the world, but they belonged to God so profoundly that Jesus would say, they're not of the world in the same way that I'm not of the world. Now what in the world's that about? Jesus is God. How could he say something like that? Well, he makes us to be by grace what he is by nature. And as those who belong to the God family, they had received the Father's words, believed in Jesus, and kept the words of Jesus until that day. Not only that, but they proclaimed those words to the world. Jesus proclaimed the Father's words, the disciples received those words, the disciples joined in and began to proclaim the words to the world as well. 
as they proclaimed the words of the Father to the world, they confronted the world so that some from the world could be saved, but the world did not appreciate this. Rather, the world hated them. The world murmured against them. The world, some of whom were very religious-looking people, actually plotted against these guys to slow them down, to stop them, to imprison them, to punish them, and even to kill them. In fact, one of their major plots was about to succeed in less than 24 hours. In fact, probably in less than 12 hours, their Lord and their teacher would be hung on a cross and killed by the world. And while they themselves would soon scatter, in his amazing grace, Jesus Christ would gather them again. He would teach them again He would give the words of the Father to them again, and he would send them not only to the lost sheep of Israel, but he would send them from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. Jesus was about to thrust these guys and the women who were involved in his ministry as well all over this world to preach the words of the Father. And as they did that, things were not always gonna be easy. Things were not always gonna go well. In fact, the world was gonna hate them but he was gonna use this for their everlasting joy. As they lovingly and willingly obeyed their Savior, they would suffer in the world at the hands of the world. And so Jesus prayed for them because of this, but I think we might be surprised about how he prayed. Look at verse 15 now. He says, Father, given all this, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. I ask that you keep them from the evil one. Now in verse 11, Jesus had asked the Father to keep the disciples in his name, and I think by that he meant keep them believing, keep them saved, keep them redeemed, keep them in the God family, keep them from falling away. And he was confident that the Father had heard and answered that prayer. He was confident that that was the Father's intentions long before he prayed that prayer. And so then in verse 15, he's adding something here. He's not asking again so much that the Father would cause them to remain saved. He's now asking in verse 15 that the Father would cause them to, ver- to persevere in the world. He's asking that the believers would keep on believing in spite of the hatred of the world and the schemes of the devil. He knows that the world is gonna come against them and he knows that Satan himself is gonna plot against them. He knows that the intention of Satan is not to irritate the people of God, but to destroy the people of God. You remember that earlier from John chapter 10, I believe it was. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus knows that his plans are vicious for us, for those of us who believe. Don't think that the devil is complacent about us. He's not complacent about us. He's out to steal, kill, and destroy us. And so Jesus is praying, Father, I'm asking not only that you would keep them in your name, but I'm asking that you would keep them persevering. I'm asking that you would not allow them to give up. I'm asking that you would keep them keeping on in the face of worldly oppression and spiritual warfare. Now the reason Jesus gave for gave for offering this request was again that the disciples were not of the world even as he was of the world. In other words, as he was not of the world. In other words, by virtue of their union with Jesus, they no more belonged to the devil than Jesus did. They were part of the God family. And so that means that all the resources of the God family should be mobilized to help them, to protect them in this world, not to keep them away from suffering, but to keep them persevering through suffering 
and also to keep them having and feeling Jesus' joy through suffering. And if you think that is not his intention for us, just think about the cross, the ultimate example of this. Jesus endured the cross for the what that was set before him? The joy that was set before him. Even through the difficulties of suffering for the name of Jesus, even through the difficulties of facing all kinds of oppositions in this world, Jesus is working for the joy of his people, beloved. Jesus is using these difficulties to mold us together with him so that we will know the joy that motivated him and that motivates him to this very day. Now, I have to be honest with you, in my flesh, I, a question arose to me the other day as I was meditating on these things. I said, Lord, why is this the best plan? Why is there not a better plan? Why, why could we not say, hey, Father, the world's a mess, but keep them away from the mess. Keep them, keep them away from difficulty. Keep them away from suffering. Make them to be like sort of people who walk in this world with a bubble around them and are just immune from all the difficulty of living in this fallen world. Make them so distinct and different and use that to bring the world to, to yourself. Why did the Lord not pray that? Why did the Lord instead pray, don't take them away from suffering? I'm not asking you, Father, to take them out of the world that hates them. I'm not asking you to remove them from the evil one who is plotting against them. What I'm asking you to do, Father, is to protect them, to keep them. Why did he pray that way? Well, Peter was a good disciple of Jesus. He had a lot, a lot of time to think about these things, and later in his life, when he was an old man, he wrote this. If you'll keep a finger in John and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, I just want to read his words because they fit so perfectly with this context. It almost makes me think that Peter wrote what we're about to read, meditating on what Jesus had prayed for, for them. So this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. In this, you who believe in Jesus, rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And I think in various trials, I see everything you could think of there. So that, here's the purpose of Jesus' uh, prayer, that we would have to endure these trials and not be rescued from these trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold, than perishes, though it is tested by the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and that is a praise and glory and honor in which we get to share. In other words, your faith is being tested so that it can be refined so that you can share in the greatest things in the universe, praise, glory, and honor. Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And in the midst of your trials, listen to what Peter says. In him you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now tell me something. How can you experience a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory without feeling joy? The feeling of the joy Jesus wants to give us is not dependent on our earthly circumstances. It's not dependent on whether or not we're going through a trial or whether or not we're suffering something. The joy that we have is in Jesus Christ himself who is greater than any trial we will ever endure. 
The joy we have is rooted in Jesus Christ himself because not only will he ultimately rescue us from this world and take us away from the presence of evil, but even now we know that he's using these things to refine us. He's using the fire of the world to expose our impurities so that he can remove those impurities. Beloved, he's trying to heighten our joy. Or, if I can remember to put this properly, He's trying to heighten his own joy inside of us. That's why he prayed not, Father, take them out of trouble, but Father, protect them in trouble. He wants to actually use the trouble as a sort of theater in which he can refine the faith and heighten the joy of his people. This is what he's up to, beloved. And so with that, with that now, let's look at what he prayed in verses 17 through 19 and understand that what he's about to pray is absolutely connected to everything he has just prayed. Since Jesus wanted his disciples to be formed into his image through the fires of this world that they might know the fullness of his joy, he went on and said, Father, please do this now. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word here for sanctify uh, just means holy, in the English language, we don't have a verbal form of the word holy. We can't say holy eyes or something like that. So we have to choose another word. But I want us to be clear that this is the word for holy. Father, make them holy is what he's praying for. He's saying, Father, set them apart for yourself. He's saying, Father, cause them to be fully devoted to you and to the things of your kingdom. He is asking the Father to purify them in a number of ways until they love the Lord their God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength, until they love one another as Jesus had loved them, and until they were fully devoted to the purposes, promise, promises, and plans of God. What he's saying is, prepare them from the inside out for this life that you have called them to live, for this joy that you have given them forever, and for this mission that they're gonna have to engage in while they're here on the earth. Sanctify them, Father, prepare them for the things that I have just prayed for. As Peter helped us see, the worldly opposition and spiritual warfare that we will face in the world just provides a furnace by which the Father can expose and remove our impurities. And please notice that the instrument by which he does that, the instrument by which he makes us holy is his word, or is the truth, Jesus said. And then Jesus said, his word is truth. Now, it's gonna get a little abstract, but please try to follow me because I'm not just taking a, a rabbit trail here for the fun of it. I think uh, that this train of thought is important. So let's think a little bit about what this means when Jesus said, your word is truth. I think it's crucial that we get in mind what he means by this so that we can submit ourselves to the holyizing instrument of God in our lives. Jesus, when he said your word is truth, he likely had in mind the gospel. The word word probably mainly refers to the message of God about Jesus Christ proclaimed to the world. And then I think he had in mind by this word word all of the truths that surround the gospel. That means that everything that had been revealed in, in times before was essentially about Jesus it was pointing to Jesus. It was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So from Genesis to Malachi, the, I, I personally wouldn't say that, that the Old Testament is the gospel, but I do think it is preparation for the gospel. It is all preparation for Jesus. It is all pointing to him. So I do think it's fair to say that the Old Testament is in part the word that Jesus had in mind. But I, but I want us to be clear about the focus here, the target. 
So let me read for you the first two verses of the letter to the Hebrews. The author there wrote this. He said, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke in an ongoing fashion. He spoke and spoke and spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken in a once-for-all decisive fashion. So he was speaking and speaking and speaking But in these last days when Jesus was revealed, he has spoken in a decisive fashion to us by his son. This means that the speech of God before Jesus was ultimately about Jesus. It was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And all the speech of God in Jesus completes everything God has to say. As I said when we were studying the the book of Hebrews, God has said all he has to say through his son, by his son. He has nothing more to say than what he has said by his son because in Jesus the fullness of the glory of God is revealed. Now in part that means that Jesus revealed the glory of God through the words that he spoke. He has said many times in John, the Father gave me words, I gave those words to his people. And as I gave the words to, the, to his people, his, his name was manifest, his glory was manifest. So the words Jesus spoke are absolutely crucial. But Hebrews and the Gospel of John and several other places help us to see that the main way Jesus revealed the Father was in his very being. In his very being. This is why he could say something as astounding as, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus doesn't just bring us the revelation of God, beloved. He is the revelation of God. That's why John is not afraid to call him the word of God in John and also in the book of Revelation. That's why Jesus was not ashamed or afraid or hesitant to point to himself in public and say, listen up, I am the truth. I don't just deliver truth to you. I am the truth. I am the essence of truth. So what I'm saying is that truth has to be communicated through words, and words are very important. Ideas are important. Sentences are important, paragraphs are important, books are important. The the truth cannot be revealed without logical, sensible words. But I don't want us to miss the fact that the heart of truth is Jesus himself. The heart of truth is God himself. So when God uses the circumstances of this world to expose the impurities of his people that he might fulfill their joy in him or his joy in them, What he does is he takes his words, those that are written, and he helps us to understand his perspective. He helps us to get a right view of our remaining sin. He helps us to get a a right view of his solution to our sin. He helps us to get a right view of his will for our lives and, and many other things, but primarily all that speech from the Bible that hopefully is pouring into our lives every single day, all of it is designed to lead us into a personal relational encounter with the living God. I would not, if you know the history of theology, I am not trying to make a Karl Barth-like distinction between the words of the Bible and the word of God but I am saying that the means of the Bible, the means of the words that are written, the means of the words that we read are the way that Jesus reveals his very self to us. So let me put it to you this way. Again, in my marriage, when I got married, Kim didn't give me a fact book about her and said, study this, I'll see you when we die. I do know lots about Kim. I know more about Kim than her parents know about her, but I know her, and this is what I'm saying. 
that God gives us the words of the Bible in order to reveal to us the word of God, Jesus himself. And the way he makes us holy is through relational interaction with him as we open up his words. You remember what Paul wrote later? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, he said, here's how people change. As we behold the glory of God in, in the face of Christ, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. The words of the Bible absolutely matter, but it is the relational encounter with Jesus that changes a soul. You know this even in your, in, in your daily life. This is just actually common sense to us. You're gonna become like the people that you hang around, especially people that you admire. If you have a, an ability to hang out with a man or a woman that you admire over a long period of time, you're gonna become like that person. Your mannerisms are gonna become like them. The, your way of speaking is gonna become like them. The way you think and act and all kinds of things are gonna become more and more like them. The same is true in the kingdom of God. We are hardwired to behold and become in that order. We behold and we become. This is how he makes us holy. Through the words of the Bible, he exposes us to the very person and the glory of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, uh, somebody this morning, I think it was Jesse, read for us the, the text from 1 John 3. Ultimately, this is gonna so radically transform us that we'll be like Jesus. We'll never be Jesus, but we'll be like Jesus. John said in 1 John chapter 3, that when we see him face to face, we're going to be like him because we're gonna see him as he is. This is what happens to people who encounter the glory of Christ. They become formed into his image. So day by day by day, the way that our Father exposes and removes our impurities is as we seek him through the word and as we read the word, the very Holy Spirit who breathed out those words makes the words come alive so that we encounter the living God so that we encounter Christ. The Holy Spirit causes us to move from a purely intellectual experience of reading words on a page to a relational experience that has to do with the details of the Bible, but that mainly has to do with the person that we are encountering. Beloved, this is how Jesus means for us to be sanctified, is through the relational interaction that we have with the Lord our God, with our God and Father. He wants in this way to prepare us for the lives he has for us in this world. So then look at verse 18. Verse 18 is not a distraction from what he's been saying. Verse 18 is right in the flow of thought. He said, then Father, as, I have sent the, as you have sent me into the world, so I am sending them into the world. And he's not simply saying, hey, check it out, you sent me, now I sent them. He's not saying that. What he's saying is in the same way that you sent me, from the same source and for the same reasons that you sent me, now I'm sending them. I am doing to them what you have done to me. I am enfolding them into the reason of our mission. I am enfolding them into the details of our mission. I am sending them out from the exact same source and for the exact same reasons that you sent me. Now, I don't wanna take the time this morning to go into a lot of detail about this. If you're interested in, in this, I I've wrote, wrote something that's about three pages long. I can send that to you. But I do wanna take just a few minutes and answer three questions then. One of them is, how did, how did the Father send Jesus? The second is, why did the Father send Jesus? And the third is then, how does Jesus send his, his people? And I hope this won't just be superfluous detail for you. I hope that this will be helpful. And again, I'm really not gonna take the time to go into any detail. Let me just, just wrap off for you why I think the or how I think the Father sent Jesus. I see four things. First of all, uh, the Father sent uh, Jesus 
and gave him authority over all flesh. You see this in verse two, if you'll look there. In verse two, uh, Jesus said, Father, you've sent me and you've given me authority over all flesh, and then he focuses attention on those that he was sent to save. So his authority has a practical reason, but the point is that the Father sent the Son out of heaven with great authority. Second point, the Father then gave all of the elect to the Son. This means that the Father had already chosen for himself from before the foundation of the world those who would be beneficiaries of his eternal grace, and he gave those people to the Son. I'm not going to take the time to read this, but you'll see this in verses 2 and verses 6 in verse 9 and verse 24, four times Jesus uses this phrase, those whom you have given to me. The Father already possesses everyone who belongs to him, and he gave these people to the Son. So he sends him out to preach, he gives him authority, and then he gives him people to whom to preach. Number three, the Father then gave his name and his words to Jesus so that when Jesus spoke his words in his name, the people believed. Jesus gave the Son authority. He gave them his, the Son people. He gave the Son words and his very name so that when Jesus preached, all who were appointed to eternal life actually believed. They came to, to faith in him. They came to have eternal life. They came out of the world because the Father had already chosen them. And then number four, the Father gave the Son power to preserve the elect and to bring them into the fullness of eternal life and of his joy. I see this in verses 11 and 12, though I don't wanna take the time to read them all. I see it there. Jesus had the power to keep the elect in the Father, and Jesus had the heart to ask the Father to keep the elect in him as well. The Father gave the, gave the Son authority and a commission. The Father gave the, word, the Son people. The Father gave the Son a word, and when the Son preached that word, the Father caused people to be born again and to be preserved forever and ever. This is how he sent the Son, with ultimate authority on an absolutely certain mission. And now just quickly, why did the Father send the Son? What was he up to? Well, I have an answer to this question that comes from verses 20 to 23, and since we haven't looked at these yet, let's take a minute and just read these words. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, that is not only for the first generation of believers, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, through their preaching in the world, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, loved them even as you loved me. It was the mutual love of the Father and the Son that thrust the Son into the world to preach the words of the Father so that some people might be saved. Please just take a moment to take this in. The reason Jesus came into the world was because the love of God overflowed. He was sent out from an eternal fountain of love between the Father and the Son. And this stunning and everlasting mercy of God will cause the praise of God to be sung forever and ever and ever. And so this leads to the final question, how then does Jesus send his people out? And I think what he is saying to the Father is, in the way you sent me, I'm sending them. 
I am asking you, Father, to enfold them into our very love. I'm asking you to let them know the love between the Father and the Son and that they could participate in this very love. And I'm asking you to let them feel and to possess the deep and eternal joy that is implicit in that love. And then out of that love, Father, out of that place of health, out of that place of relational wealth, out of that place of, of, of life and joy, I'm sending them out into the world to preach your gospel to the world because although some will hate them, some are also gonna come into eternal life. Please understand, please understand. When we have this little thing about giving out gospels of John and asking people to consider Jesus and trying to persuade people to come to know Jesus, we're not a sales force that's trying to grow an organization of the church. You know what we are? We're a family of God that is being sent out by the overflow of the love of God into the world to invite other people to come in and experience the love and the joy that we have. And as we go, the things that were true of the Son are now also true of us. All four things are still true. First of all, the Father is still giving the Son authority in the world over all flesh, and Jesus is exercising that authority in the world through his people, through the church. And I don't just mean the 501c3 organizations, I mean through his body, through his actual people. He's exercising his authority in Elk River through his body, even as we speak. Number two, the Father still gives the elect to the Son. Of the seven plus billion people on the planet, some of them have been chosen by God from before the foundation of the world. Every one of them has already been given to the Son so that when the people of God go into the world and preach the word of God, all who are appointed to eternal life will believe. There are places in this world that are hard and people are suffering even unto death for preaching the gospel. But everybody appointed to eternal life in every place on this earth will come to believe because the Father has given them to the Son. And so that, I guess I've just bled into number three, because the Father is still giving the Son his name and his words, and the Son is delivering those words through his people into the world. And finally, number four, we can have confidence that as we preach the gospel, plain and simple, those who are appointed to eternal life will believe. They simply will. The reason that the mission of the church and the mission of the Son are so identical is because in essence, Jesus is still on his mission through the church. Jesus is still doing the things that God the Father gave him to do, but now he's doing it through his people. That would not be possible though, were it not for what Jesus preached or said, prayed in verse 19. So look there with me quickly, and then we'll pray. Verse 19, Jesus said, Father, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now the word here for consecrate is the exact same word as the word for sanctify in verse 17 and the word for sanctified at the end of verse 19. In other words, I, I kinda wish the Bible translators would not have done this, but they chose two different English words to communicate the same Greek word. And so what Jesus is saying is, Father, for their sake I make myself holy, that they also may be, be made holy in the truth by your word. That's what he's saying. And in one way, this statement is very inspiring. To look at someone as, as lofty as Jesus and to think that he would consecrate himself for our sakes. But in another way, I find this question really confusing because of who Jesus is. Jesus is God and therefore he is infinitely holy. So 
what can it possibly mean when he says, I, I, I make myself holy? I consecrate myself to you, Father. Well, in this particular context, this word has two meanings, both of which have deep roots in the Old Testament. The first meaning of consecrate in this context, it was also used of the priests who consecrated themselves to the service of a priest in the presence of God. And I think Jesus is saying that. Jesus is saying, Father, you have appointed me to be a priest forever and you will not change your mind. I submit myself to this. I set myself aside for this. I accept the job. I devote myself utterly. I I set myself apart for this task. I will be your priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I accept. I consecrate myself. The second way this word gets used in the Old Testament is to talk about the consecration of a sacrifice for sins. And I think, again, Jesus has this in mind when he says, I consecrate myself. He's saying, I'm gonna prepare the ultimate sacrifice for sin, which happens to be me. I'm going to prepare myself to give my life on the cross as a once for all sacrifice for everyone who will believe so that the elect will have their sins atoned for, so that the elect can be reconciled to the Father, which is eternal life, and so that the elect can be fully sanctified, fully made holy, so that the elect can be fully prepared for the mission that God the Father has given to them. In fact, if you'll remember, the author of Hebrews says this in chapter 10. He says of what Jesus did, for by a single offering of himself. Think about that, a single offering. For 1,300 years before Jesus, sacrifices were offered day by day by day by day by day by day. Hundreds of thousands of sacrifices were offered and none of them perfected the consciousness of sinner, the conscience of sinners. But Jesus came along, and by a singular sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And having perfected those who are being made holy, Jesus includes them in his mission in the world so that they can be holy as he is holy. This is what I'm saying. The ground for his request, Father, make them holy, is Jesus' own self-sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus provides the foundation for it all. And if the Father will answer the prayer, and of course the Father will answer the prayer, if he'll sanctify his people, then he will cause his people to persevere in this world in the face of, of worldly opposition and spiritual warfare. And through all of that, the Father will cause the joy of Jesus to be fulfilled in us so that we'll possess his joy and actually feel his joy forever and ever and ever. Now these six verses are deep, they're profound. My sermon maybe at times has been hard to follow, so I wanna summarize the whole sermon in one sentence, and I agree, it's a complicated (laughs) sentence. But if nothing else, you'll be able to get this off the website later when Brett's able to put it all up, and I, I wanna help you understand, I think, what Jesus is saying here. Here's the way I would summarize it. Jesus offered up his life to the Father so that his people could be made holy by the word of the Father amidst the fires of life and therefore possess and experience the fullness of Jesus' joy. This is the design of Christ for everybody who believes in him. This is our destiny in him. And so I think really the only word of application for us is let's surrender to this work. Let me just close by reading some counsel from James, the half-brother of Jesus, and then I'll go straight into prayer. 
given everything we just heard from Jesus, prayed in the presence of the Father, hear the words of James afresh. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Give your permission to this process that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Our Lord and our Savior, we thank you so much for praying out loud in the presence of the disciples. We thank you so much for causing John and whoever else was involved in the process to preserve this prayer for us so that we could read it and meditate upon it today. And more so, we thank you for the things for which you prayed. We thank you that you have prayed for our joy and that you're laboring for our joy in you. Or, Lord, I keep putting that the wrong way around. We thank you so much that you're laboring to fulfill your joy in us. And we thank you, Father. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you prayed for our perseverance. We thank you that you asked the Father to make us endure the hatred of the world and the designs of the devil. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that the Father will surely hear and answer your prayer. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you prayed that the Father would make us holy. We thank you that you prayed that he would make us holy by the word of truth, which ultimately is you. And I pray that you would now fulfill your design in us. Oh, Lord, you haven't caused us to meditate on these verses just so that we have something to do on a Sunday morning. You are at work in our lives. So please now, Father, by your spirit, by your presence, by your grace, work these things powerfully in us. Show by your work in our lives, that you have smiled upon the prayer of your son. And for what you will do, we give you our thanks and praise in Jesus' name, amen.